Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Hey, you! Welcome to One Step Beyond, the show that encourages you to take a step outside your comfort zone and enrich your life. This is episode four, which means it's also the fourth and final installment of the miniseries from Kingston to Kilimanjaro, for which I took my recording devices on a group trip to Tanzania last summer and documented our progress to the roof of Africa. If you're new to this show, you may want to go back and hear the series from the beginning. If you have been listening since episode one, you'll be familiar with this whole other spiel about the show, how One Step Beyond is all about positively engaging with the world outside our door. That might mean getting off the couch and learning to run, taking a hike in your local mountains or rail trails, or doing a virtual climb of Kilimanjaro on your own doorstep, given that travel has been unsafe of late. I'll be tackling all of this and more from episode 5 onwards. Think of One Step Beyond as a magazine show, your regular dose of inspirational stories from near and far. For now though, prepare to be transported to the foot of the volcano we all recognise as Kilimanjaro, and get ready to join me as we go... One Step Beyond! From Kingston to Kilimanjaro, a four-part series on a journey to the roof of Africa. Episode 4, The Peak. My name is Tony Fletcher, and in August 2019, along with four friends from across the world and a Tanzanian-American tour guide from the Catskills, I set off to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, the highest point in Africa and the tallest freestanding mountain in the world. Over the course of the first three episodes, you'll have followed as we hiked for four days solid from the Marangu Gate, which is 1905 metres above sea level, to the Kibo Huts, at a truly punishing 4,714 metres. Along the way, we've marvelled at the beauty of our surroundings, gotten to know our guides and porters, made friends among other climbers, and worried for Tim, who came down with a heavy case of altitude sickness. Now, however, we're ready for our final assault on the summit. Some 19,341 feet, that's 5,895 metres above sea level. So we're about 15 minutes behind schedule, but I think we're ready to go, just about. It's early in the morning of Wednesday, August the 7th, and by early, I mean it's barely 30 minutes past midnight. After a full day of hiking uphill yesterday, and on next to no sleep, we, that's myself and my friends Steve 
Marie, Gwen and Tim have just set off from the Kibo huts for our overnight trek up the side of the Kilimanjaro volcano and hopefully onto the Uhuru Peak, the roof of Africa. I had expected it to be like howling winds, sub-zero, um, like wind chills down in the minuses. And uh, there is a little bit of snow coming down, but there's also plenty of stars in the sky, so it feels good. Wish us luck. The climb to the crater rim, Gilman's Point, is just four kilometers in distance, but 1,000 meters in elevation gain. That's 3,300 foot of climbing in just two and a half miles. A sign back at the Kibo huts, estimated four hours. Ah, it's a little after 2 a.m. We made our second water stop. We were relieved that the uh, Spice Girls caught up with us. The Spice Girls is the name that I've given the five young female British expats currently all living and working in Qatar. They're on the same route, Marangu, and the same six-day schedule as us, and they've become personal travel companions for their fellow British expats, Tim, who lives in Sydney, Australia, and myself, a long-term New Yorker. We'd have plenty of chances to pass each other on the way up the volcano. I'm not going to joke. This, this thing is uh, hard work, but at the same time, I fully expected it to be. Though we're taking water stops every hour or so, it's not just so we can rest, though that's appreciated. At high altitude, the air is dry and we're breathing quickly, which means our lungs are rapidly seeping fluid, even though we aren't perspiring. In short, it's easy to think we're not thirsty when in fact we're constantly dehydrating. We're each carrying around three litres of water and it's heavy, but though the temptation may be to drink it already, it needs to last us 12 hours or more. It's 3am, we're at Hansmeyer Cave. The Hansmeyer Cave is named for the pioneering German climber first to reach the summit in 1889. But although, like us, he came up from Orangu village, he then veered west of this particular route to ascend the volcano. And even on his chosen path of least resistance, he and his climbing partner had to carve stairs out of an ice cliff on these very slopes, with 20 axe blows required for each step. Recalling as much offers a vivid reminder of the glacier's rapid retreat since then, something discussed in the last episode. After all, part of the reason for Kilimanjaro's current day popularity is that one can, at least in theory, walk all the way to the top. It looks pretty daunting in terms of the lines of light snaking up ahead, but my supposition is that we are more than halfway up Gilman Point. We're two and a half hours into hiking, we should be about another hour and a half on Gilman Point. And then, uh, then we're at the crater rim and uh, we still have a bit of uphill and about uh, another couple of kilometres till we get to Uhuru Peak. And right now I've got hot tea in one hand. That tea was courtesy of the crew, by the way. Just had half a cliff bar and uh, I think we're all doing okay. We are more than halfway up to Gilman's Point, both in distance and height. But when I suggest to Lucas, our lead guide, whose demeanour has gone from laid back to full on with this overnight climb, that we should therefore only have two more hours to go, he audibly scoffs and then he barks back at me. 
Ask me that question in two hours. I do the math in my head. Does he really mean we're not going to crest until 7am, an hour after sunrise? He does. He too has done the math, and he has us all figured out. He knows that the increasingly thin air and the relentless climbing will slow us down step by step, and that we will tire regardless as the night wears on. He's also aware that we can only go as fast as our least fast climber, and there's no doubt that Gwen is finding it hard work. From just behind me, Tim assures her not to worry. He's happy to go as slow as need be. Marie is up front, Steve is at the back, and I shuffle along in the middle. The night wears on in something of a daze. All our focus on the exertion required to keep moving uphill at this altitude. Gwen pauses every few steps, and I'm not really sure what to say or do. So I ask Protus, my Tanzanian-American friend who's organised our crew and travel and flown over from the Catskills to join us. He puts himself right alongside Gwen, offering the kind of encouragement I figure he's done for countless clients beforehand. He starts singing. We are going to make it to the And Gwen continues to put one step in front of the other. Pole pole. Elsewhere on the mountain, we can hear other guides and porters singing their own Kilimanjaro songs. And as one group passes by us in full swing, I ensure to record them. The slightest crack of light appears from behind their group, signalling the impending dawn, and somehow it illuminates the music. It's a majestic moment, and for all that we're tired and want to be done with this climb, it's one I'd love to have been able to snuggle inside of for good. To be honest, the sunrise, as seen from this side of Kibo, is not really that spectacular. It's more of a relief than anything else that we can now be in daylight. But of course, daylight reveals how far we still have to ascend. And, uh... It's a long way. The last part of the trek, not surprisingly, is the hardest, as the pitch steepens and the volcanic scree that has formed our footing for most of the mountainside turns now to volcanic boulders, spewed out from inside the crater over the millennia. It's starting to get almost hand over fist. There are clouds down below. Uh, my Wednesday is down below. There are climbers down below. All in all, we are doing pretty darn well. We are well over 18,000 feet above sea level in what's officially known as extreme altitude. The Alpine desert is long gone. This is pure Alpine. Nothing lives up here, not for long at any rate as the carcass of Hemingway's famous snow leopard confirmed. We are going to make it to the loop of Africa. 
The seemingly endless, certainly breathless, and laboriously slow uphill trudge is punctuated by little more than the sound of protest singing, the occasional wheeze of self-motivation, and various high-altitude coughs. I'm so glad I packed lozenges. Last few steps. Last few steps. But now, six and a half hours after we set off from the Kibo huts, on the exact schedule Lucas was able to predict over four hours back, we finally close in on Gilman's Point. I can't contain my enthusiasm. Last few steps. Here we are. There's a sign at Gilman's Point that tells us we're at 5,685 metres, 18,652 feet above sea level. I managed to get my gloves off, get my Pixel 3 out, and record our last few steps up and over the crater rim. Proudus. What's up? We did it. Finally, did right? Gilman Point and Gwen got there ahead of me. Yeah. We did it. That audio suggests lightheaded elation, certainly on my part. But the video that accompanies it shows some desperate faces. Tim is utterly dazed. Gwen completely exhausted. And I even have an image of a guide or porter sitting down, looking totally spent himself. Protus later admits to me that for all he was able to motivate Gwen, he felt every step of it too. He hasn't done the push-up from the Kibo huts in many, many a year, and it is a particularly tough climb. Gilman's point. All right. On the crater rim, we encounter the Spice Girls, and they appear to be cheering us on. Then I realise it's the last of their number, Leah, that they're motivating. Ah, and your girl Leah's about to make it up, right? She was struggling. Leah's the one who had Tim and me fooled a few days ago, telling us they were the English national netball team. Like all of them, she's been full of good cheer and youthful energy. But her struggle was so severe up to Gilman's point, that the others had to finish the ascent without her, leaving her to an individual guide so that she could finish the climb at her own pace. When she makes it to the rim, to the sound of her expat friend's huge cheers, she sits down, folds herself over, bursts into tears, and then, and I hope she doesn't mind me saying as much, vomits. Congratulations. Thank you. It's good fun, right? Nothing like going out on a six and a half hour climb up a mountain in the dark, in the, in the sub freezing on no sleep at high altitude. Don't hate on me. I was about to get my comeuppance. We still had that two kilometres to go before we would reach Uhuru Peak, and we still had 700 feet in elevation. And all of a sudden, at least at my end, the world turned upside down. My vision was no longer clear. But I can't just say it was blurred either. I didn't feel drunk, and yes, I do know what that feels like, but I certainly wasn't, well, sober, normal. The sun was blazing, there were lots of people milling around, and I somewhat lost my bearings. Steve and Marie initially set off ahead of me at what looked like a furious pace. I learned later they were just keen to get out of the sun. One of our guides, I think it was Simon, attached himself to me, and we clambered on alone for a while. 
I had no idea where Tim and Gwen were at this point. I never doubt again up Gilman Point. And there was this feeling of elation when we finally did it, however long it took. And it's like, right, lead us on to Uhuru Peak. In theory, it seemed all so easy. But really, this truly was the hardest part. We were no longer protected by the night air. We were at 19,000 feet. We were exhausted, having really not slept for well over 24 hours. And the pace had quickened up too. We'd taken so long climbing the volcano that we now needed to speed things up. I'd been comfortable with that slow pace up the side of the mountain, but I wasn't comfortable trying to walk fast with no real understanding of who I was and barely just about where I was. Me, Tim, Stephen, I don't know about Marie, but we're lightheaded, feeling the altitude and feeling like we left it all on uh, Gilman, Gilman Point, right? The Marengo route definitely has its benefits. But the climb up the volcano from the Kibo huts is the steepest and it leaves the longest distance from the crater rim to the actual Uhuru Peak. And it's enough at this altitude and after overnight hiking and a day's hiking before that to cause many people to turn back. Once we returned to the Marangu Gate, I had a good look at the logbook and noticed that a fair few people listed Gilman's as their personal peak. We all reconvened what may have been half an hour or so later. Time had lost pretty much all meaning by now. We were way up top of the crater and busy admiring the ice cliffs just a few hundred yards down the hill from us. A couple of days ago, Protus had suggested we could wander off trail to explore those ice cliffs. The very idea of it seemed preposterous at this point. We all stopped for another short bite to eat and more liquid and I took photos of the cliffs. And then, as we embarked on another short, steep climb in the exposed bright sun, I checked my pockets for my pixel. I couldn't find it. Damn. I'd climbed almost to the very roof of Africa, and now I was going to lose something? And my phone, of all things, with all this precious film footage on it. I put my bag down and ran back off down the hill. Lucas set off after me. At the spot where we'd stopped to eat, there was no sign of it. I don't know what I would have done next, but fortunately we heard shouting from back up the trail. Protus had had the good sense to rummage through my bag, and it had taken him all of about ten seconds to find my phone. So I'd just gone and added an extra hundred feet or so of climbing to my summit journey, and for no good reason, other than to provide you with a perfect example of how the thin air affects the mind's ability to think clearly. So, it's coming in, it's coming up to nine o'clock and I can finally see the sign, the marks of Kilimanjaro, Uhuru Peak, the shortest point in Africa. And uh, it's about three, four hundred yards away right now. And I f feel now like when I ran my first marathon in New York City, I was spent. I was absolutely done for. I'd never experienced running a marathon before. I didn't know whether to throw up. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. And uh, that's how I sort of felt at the top of Gilman's Point. So I kind of feel like when I ran that first marathon, and, and it's like if somebody said, yeah, but you've got to run another five miles to get your medal. It doesn't count. You haven't finished. 
uh, and I wouldn't have been able to do it that day. And to be honest, this last hour, trying to deal with uh, getting up to Keeley's Peak, felt the same way. I do not feel like I've been on planet Earth. Listening to the audio, I sound like I'm quite with it. And yet the next audio you're going to hear, recorded on my phone as I approach the true summit, I do not recall making. I honestly had no recollection of it until I got back home and went through the recordings. It took me totally by surprise. The video part of it looks like it's being played back in slow motion. Such is my pace at this point. And I won't say I'm making total sense either. But I'm going to let you hear it because as I close in on the sign that confirms that I've made it to the roof of Africa, I find three of my climbing friends there ahead of me. And somehow Leah, the Spice Girl who'd had such a struggle up to Gilman's Point, is coming back the other way, having ascended already. I must have had a hard time of it this last couple of hours. I'm just about on the roof of Africa. A couple of my friends are there already. We'll get our photos taken. This is what we came for. Uh, you know, it's just a celebration being able to do something that's possible to do if you set your mind to it that has a beauty to it and a merit to it and doesn't seem to leave any damage so I am dead happy and excuse me if I get emotional once I get there we did it when Tim made it to the top a few seconds after me one of the other guides alongside him, him looking just as bad as I felt. We hugged. I've known Tim since I was about 15, but back when we were running our fanzines and playing in bands, we just had no way of ever being able to imagine standing on the rooftop of Africa together. It was breathtaking in every way. It was breathtaking in its beauty, and it was breathtaking in its brutality. I feel like I should be euphoric in my narration here. After all, we'd done it. All of us. we climbed to the top of Kilimanjaro, the roof of Africa, the tallest freestanding mountain in the world, 5,895 metres above sea level. Yahoo! But realistically, any euphoria was left back at Gilman's Point, a couple of hours earlier, where you could hear the cheers. The sensation upon arriving at Uhuru Peak was more one of relief. Yes, we hugged. Yes, we smiled for the camera. But we weren't singing and laughing. We were too exhausted for that. Tim and I certainly weren't the only ones to get choked up. A full 36 hours later, over a celebration dinner in Arusha, having all just showered for the first time in a week, Gwen let on, that she had these certain origin stories she'd brought with her. One of those origin stories was related to a sixth grade teacher who was very misogynistic and very threatened by me and um, that I had done this report that included Tanzania and included Kilimanjaro and, oh. and my you know, desire to go there to Africa and experience Africa and his making fun of me. Wow. You know, that I, w I would never go there, you know, to Kilimanjaro. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
And and so God, when I was up there on the top of the mountain, I was like face to face with with how he treated me. And then on the other side of the coin was the following year, I had a social studies teacher who was a, a young woman, and she had been in the Peace Corps in in Kenya, and in Nairobi, and in Nairobi and close to Kilimanjaro. She told us, taught us Swahili that clearly I didn't remember, and different things like that. But here, here was this right after this other experience with Africa, with this male teacher, to have this female teacher who had lived there in Kenya for two years, mm. and and so it reinforced my I am going to go there. Everybody has their own reason for tackling something like Kilimanjaro. For me, to some extent, it comes down to George Mallory's famous quote about why he wanted to climb Mount Everest. Because it's there. I don't have any interest in climbing Mount Everest, I should state, not now that it's become a trash-ridden, gridlocked death zone for anyone with $10,000 to spend on the permit that Nepal, a desperately poor and inexperienced democracy, offers to all comers. I don't want to contribute to the desecration of our planet's rooftop. And I pause here to acknowledge that while Mount Kilimanjaro is extraordinarily well-kept, remarkably clean, and not littered with oxygen tanks or dead bodies, there's no doubt that we're contributing to its erosion. This is the inherent contradiction of global travel. Any time one steps into the wild, one first tames it, and then, inadvertently, or, if you're Coca-Cola or Kellogg's or a similar company, you consciously commercialise it. I don't have a solution to this contradiction other than that I hope that the benefits of a journey like this outweigh the drawbacks. And I believe that they do. Just a few hours later, descending down to the Harombo huts, Tim and I got to review our climb. And as ever, he had some good perspective to offer. You know, it's, uh, it's a bloody great big mountain. Yes. It gets cold. It's just shy of 20,000 feet. Yeah. Which, if you've ever been a plane, and they say they're cruising at 30,000 feet, imagine climbing two thirds of that. But of course, that's exactly what we did. And having now achieved our goal, we spend way too long celebrating it. First, there are the inevitable photographs individual photos, group photos photos with our crew, and then other groups arrive and they want pictures, and our crew, who looked like they could happily spend all day at the summit, offered to take them. And then Protus asks to interview me for an Instagram post, and despite the wind lapping at us, he goes ahead and uses it. Given that you asked, when you do something like this, it's not just about the summit, it's not just about the destination, every moment of it has been wonderful. But when I'm done, Tim says to me, as if he's just remembered as much. You know, we're advised to be up here for a few minutes at most. It's been 45. That George Mallory fella, by the way, he died on Mount Everest. It took 75 years to find his body. Now, none of us are expecting to die out here, but just because we didn't need emergency oxygen doesn't mean we aren't doing enormous damage to our bodies by staying up here for this long. The altitude sickness immediately kicks back in now that I have to start working again. And this time, it stays with me. You know that near sleep state? Like when you take a nap and you start dreaming but you know you're still awake? It was like that. I started having, well I guess you could call them mild hallucinations. 
I knew I was on Mount Kilimanjaro, but my brain was running a dual narrative. I could have coped with that, probably, but additionally, I had that nausea that you get when you're not well, the part that comes a few minutes before you actually throw up, the part where you groan. Much to Protus's amusement, I'm sure, I groaned all the way down the mountain. Marie and Steve, solid and steady as they are, were first to descend back to base. Gwen seemed to have gotten a second wind as well, and she soon left me for dust. Tim was struggling behind me for a while, until his guides decided, literally, to take matters in hand. You can make two of them grab me arm by arm, and they basically ran me down the trail, <laughs> the most direct route. Right. Which was pretty wearing on the legs, but I gained a lot of ground in a very little time. Protus asked if I wanted to slide down the scree, a quad-busting exercise, a little like snowboarding without snow, or a board come to that. I said no. I followed the more lengthy zigzag trail all the way down. And when we reached the Kibo huts, I took about all the medicines I had on hand, not many to be blunt, and laid down. We should have been in for a minimum of two hours sleep before our afternoon descent, another 10k downhill back to the Harombo huts. But we were so drastically behind schedule that we were only allowed the one. Still, that one hour? Turned out it was all I needed. I'd now had a grand total of perhaps three hours sleep in the last 32. But by the time we set off from Kibo, down through the Alpine Desert and into the Heather Zone, I felt right as rain. In fact, coming down from the Kibo huts in the afternoon, I almost felt like I was being rushed. It's understandable. We've done what we came here for. It's time to get off the mountain. But of course you can appreciate things so much more on your way back down without the exertion required by climbing into thinner air. There's actually the same amount of oxygen in the air, <laughs> but the pressure is less. Right. So to actually bring it into your body, you know, I think uh, at the top there, at uh, 90,000 feet, it's 40% uh, less pressure. Right. So your body's got to work 40% harder to get the oxygen into the system. Tim is right, of course. Except that at 19,000 feet, what's called our effective oxygen rate is actually less than 50%. We had to work literally twice as hard just to breathe normally up there. John Reader's book makes an interesting case that you can follow the history of the Earth and the development of life upon it as you come back down from the peak of Kilimanjaro. For example, only a single particularly hardy species of spider has been known to survive on the crater, digesting whatever is blown in on the wind, and even then it spends much of its time underground. But as you come back down to the Kibo huts, you notice the moss and the lichen, which have survived a couple of hundred million years on Earth already and will surely outlast us humans. Then you observe the occasional high-flying raven, and below the Kibo huts, as you descend into the saddle, the surprisingly beautiful everlastings. And you really know you're back down in a life-supporting zone when you see the fully erect lobelias and ground cells. By the end of the afternoon, we're back at the Harombo huts. How are you feeling now, Gwen? I'm exhausted. Uh, I'm so exhausted. Um, yeah, but you know, I had a great walk back. I had a, I, 
chatted a lot with um, Simon. Ooh. Yeah, good. Yeah. Simon, we've come to realize, is a legend on Kilimanjaro. Not just because he's climbed the mountain well over 500 times, but because he's also served as a ranger on it and as a detective as well, working in the parks to catch poachers. Two days later, we're in a car with Lucas on the main road from Arusha to Moshi. And Lucas paused to say hello to Simon, who was the only person on the streets wearing a suit. It was something of a surprise for us. He'd actually been sporting the same Fulham FC shirt all the way up and down the mountain. I did want to say, you know, a funny thing about altitude sickness that Marie and I had never been to altitude, and I got it, and this woman was like a machine. Marie really was amazing. Out of the five of us, she's the only one who seemed to just go. In fact, the next day, as we make our way down from the Harombo huts, she comes jogging past us, getting a mile in or so on the trails. I'd been keen to do that on our acclimatisation day, but Produs had strictly forbidden it. And today, my backpack's too heavy and I'm not dressed right for it. Still, after we get through the Mandara huts, named for a 19th century local chieftain of serious renown and significant brutality, Marie and I get to talking about her experience. Actually, since even when we got to the gate, I began feeling the altitude. And I felt, so the entire trip I've been feeling um, shortness of breath, of course, I, I guess everyone does, but I sort of a tightness in the head and my stomach's really been queasy throughout. So, and then so when we climbed, it was just gauging that, feeling how my head was getting a little muffier, but still being fine. You know, the stomach, I wasn't really thinking of too much, but I was, you know, definitely as we were going up, I was really just like, okay, okay, you know, get better. But my head, it starts feeling like a little start of a headache. It's like, okay. <laughs> I would posit that her long distance running experience on the trails gave her a cardiovascular strength an ability to produce oxygen under strenuous circumstances that the non-runners in our group couldn't match. So when you do have issues, when things do come up, you know, bad things and tough things, you're just like, okay, this, I can get through. I have that strength. As for why she then fared better than Steve and myself, fellow long-distance runners, I might posit that her cautious, long-view approach to the climb paid dividends. It's probably no coincidence that the longer the long-distance running race, the more women you find placing high up the field. And on that note, I'd be meaning to add, Gwen never doubted her ability to get up to Gilman's point. She knew she was going to do it. She knew she wasn't turning back. You know, it meant so much to me, Marie, that when I was, like, totally melting down, you know, the misogynistic teacher and all this gender stuff, that there was a woman on the mountain there with me you know, yeah, because I was like, I'm this is something that I knew that she would get. Yes. And and that most people wouldn't. Yeah, that was powerful. And it added another element for me. Cause it was, you know, just... Our dinner that Thursday evening offered the last quality time together. The next day, Steve and Marie would head out on a two-day safari with Protus. Along with Lucas and the driver, I would take Gwen and Tim back to an incredible school for the poor. St Bernadette's that I'd visited in 2016, just outside Arusha. We'd see out the Friday at a tourist-friendly bar in Arusha, watching a covers band as well as the first fixture of the new English soccer season. 
Lucas and our cook, Juma, had come along, ostensibly to protect us. Though A, that was unnecessary, and B, I made the mistake of offering to buy them drinks all evening, and it was us who got them home in a taxi instead. Gwen would stay on a couple more days. Tim and I would fly back to our respective countries on the Saturday. Our adventure on Kilimanjaro itself had truly ended back at the Marangu Gate, where it had started the previous Saturday lunchtime. It's custom for the crew to provide some sort of celebratory song and dance after a climb, successful or not. Some are performed on the trail itself. Prodas, though, had wanted to wait until our entire crew of 19, guides, porters, cooks, drivers and all, could be in attendance. And it was a further mark of his crew's dedication, commitment and genuine zest and enthusiasm. But whereas the other dances we'd witnessed lasted a few minutes at most, ours ran for 45. The crew just wouldn't stop singing and dancing, bringing us into their fold several times, their choruses punctuated by a familiar chant from Marie's especially ebullient porter, Maruga. Halfway through, I turned around and saw the Spice Girls with front row seats at the picnic shelter, giving us the thumbs up. It was a lovely way to round out our connection and our new friendships. The tipping process is inevitably fraught, even for Americans who are more familiar with it than many other nationalities. It's recommended to add 10% in American cash dollars to the cost of your climb and to distribute that money to the team individually. But there was simply no way for us to calculate appropriate sums for 19 people, and we wouldn't have had to change either. The Roof of Africa Adventures, Protus's travel company, had been exceptional every step of the way, and we placed our trust in Barnabas, the head guide, to distribute our tips appropriately. Each of us gave a speech, as did Protus, and then I got to give one more. Some of you were with us on the mountain every day as our guides, but we could not have done this trip without every one of you doing everything that you do, the porters, the cooks, the waiters and the guides. So even when you weren't on the mountain with us, you were with us, making sure we got to the top and we came back down in one piece, happy. And um, thank you for your, just your warmth and your generosity and your kindness. <coughs> And uh, we are so happy to have done this and to have been with all of you. Asante sana. From there, we shared a bus back to Arusha, the crew disembarking one by one, alternating on the bus between catching up on their phones and watching bongo music videos that aired from a television screen at the front of the bus. Bongo is an African form of reggae hip-hop replete with early 2000s-era obligatory bling and scantily dressed women. The world, after all, is an increasingly small place, 
as the number of people attempting to summit Kilimanjaro every year exemplifies. But the relative ease of travel and our universal commonalities as humans, well that, my friends, is all the more reason to explore it. The mini-series From Kingston to Kilimanjaro was produced at the studios of Radio Kingston in New York. If you have any comments about or suggestions for this show, email onestepbeyond at ijamming.net or find us on social media. Just search for One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher. Thanks to Mark Lerner for designing the logo and to the members of Madness for permission to use their music as our theme song. You can subscribe to this show on pretty much every podcast platform, again by searching for One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher. And if you like what you hear, please consider leaving a positive review or rating. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy and stay active.